Hello, and welcome to the very first ever Anesthesiology News Presents feature. I'm your host, Michael DePoe-Wilson. We have an exclusive interview with an anesthesiologist who has a very personal story to share about her struggles with opioid diversion and abuse. Now, her story has been well-documented, including an article that appeared in Marie Claire in 2019. Yet, despite her story being so well-known, her identity has never been revealed. She has decided to come forward and speak publicly about her experience and struggle with opioid addiction and the perils of drug diversion as an anesthesiologist for the first time. Her name is Jody Coleman. And Dr. Coleman agreed to speak with James Pruden, the editorial director for Anesthesiology News, so that she could share that story openly and publicly for the very first time. Here's James's conversation with Dr. Coleman. The new Anesthesiology News 2021 Summer Fall Buyer's Guide is now available 24-7 on your desktop, tablet, or mobile device. The Buyer's Guide gives you access to a wide range of new products for your practice, from airway management to ultrasound and everything in between. Check out the 2021 Summer Fall Buyer's Guide today at anesthesiologynews.com slash buyer's guide. Hello, everybody. This is James Pruden. I'm the editorial director of Anesthesiology News. And um, today we have what I hope will be an interesting and an instructive and perhaps cautionary story from an anesthesiologist who succumbed to the ever-present um, availability and temptation of the drugs she used every day for her profession. Her story is one of addiction and then overcoming that addiction and then having the guts to come forward and talk about it so that others might learn from her story. So, Dr. Jody Coleman, uh, welcome and thank you very much for talking with us today. Um, your story was originally uh, in Marie Claire, and it was a couple of years ago, but you, you weren't really named. Um, but in that article, you had some interesting things that were, were discussed. One was, uh, I, I, I thought there were two stressors in your life, work and family, um, and sort of a family upbringing that relied on kind of perfection and also a work uh, environment that was just uh, stressful. And that's obviously something that a lot of anesthesiologists know all about. But tell me a little bit about your um, family uh, upbringing. Sure. Great. Thank you for having me. I'm privileged to be here. Um, so I am the fifth of seven children. Um, and I uh, have just in our immediate family, there's, I think, uh, four PhDs. There's uh, four MDs. Um, there's several master's degrees. It was definitely, um, I ha I have two awesome parents. Um, and so I have support in definitely and, and lots of love from all my siblings and, and parents, but definitely it was an achievement oriented family. And even if that's how I perceived it more so like that perfection was what was most needed. Um, I graduated, um, from, uh, high school and went to college at the age of 16. And then I went to med school right after I turned 19. So in that sense, um, I uh, just really was on the speed up track to do everything and to do it really well. Uh, do you think that, you know, sometimes you have people who are very advanced mentally, but they skip through all the mistakes and, and the, the growing up that you do uh, as a teenager and, and perhaps you, propelled yourself 
you know, mentally you were prepared to go into college and, and medical school at an early age, but maybe you weren't psychologically ready for that. I'm, I'm bringing up my, my armchair psychologist, uh, you know, so <laughs> you can shoot that theory down if you want. Yeah, no, absolutely agreed um, for sure with the, the benefit of hindsight without question that was emotionally I wasn't ready. And um, they talk about in addiction, even sometimes like when someone starts using, um, for instance, like children, if they start using at the age of 14 or something, sometimes they're emotionally um, stunt or kind of arrested at that age. Um, and some of my treatment team subsequently has said um, that there was definitely um, I'm sure that I was not emotionally ready, even though I very much thought I was at the time. Uh-huh. So, um, well, one of the things that I found was so, uh, unusual about your story that I, that was in Marie Claire <clears throat> was the fact that there was really no alcohol abuse. You were you were already a very successful anesthesiologist. You weren't just an anesthesiologist. You were very at the top of your game. No alcohol abuse, no pot abuse, no 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 really nothing. So you went from what I was refer, refer to as zero to 150 miles per hour, which I think is very unusual. Um, um, they talk about alcohol and pot being gateway drugs to bigger things. And I think that that's, you know, I don't know if that's disputed or not, but um, I think that you see that a lot in these cases. Um, how how do, would you how would you explain that? Because the unusual aspect of that I find I found interesting. Correct. Absolutely. And I have been told, um, I think a lot of we, uh, us in the recovery community oftentimes say that we think we're terminally unique. That's one of our problems. We think that they only apply to us and we get into our heads about that. Uh, And I should say I, I I shouldn't put it on anyone, but that's a common theme. But that being said, I have been told that that is very unusual that I didn't elicit other addictive behaviors to substances prior. I did have a little bit, my, my workaholism and uh, I had some eating disorder issues as a, as a teenager. Um, So those are kind of that addictive personality, but yeah. And in fact, for me, from an anesthesia standpoint, I was like, diametrically like super opposed to using um to anyone that would use drugs um especially like the fentanyl and two fentanyl because the my two uh prior or two of the cases that i've been pretty involved with one was a when i was an attending there was a resident um that had that we had been using um but and the other was another um anesthesia personnel later when i was in private practice but I associated those people. They had a lot of clinical problems, uh, personal problems, um, kind of the kind of what we think of in the anesthesia world as the stereotypical uh, things. And I was so intent. I was it was the most important thing to me to be the best anesthesiologist, even more so than to be a good human. So I realized I lost my way along. But, um, yeah, it was definitely unusual in that sense. And um I think we'll talk about later kind of what was where it was, where my switch uh, flipped, mm-hmm. where I changed my thinking about it. So just to be clear, we're talking about the the uh, drug of abuse here is, is fentanyl and sufentanil, which obviously is, you know, uh, uh, many more times more powerful than morphine um, and, and really dangerous uh, in, in a lot of people's hands. Obviously, being an anesthesiologist, it wasn't as dangerous in your hands because you knew how to dose it and everything. Um, but what about the work environment? So So you have the the perfectionist uh, uh, upbringing, even though it was a loving family, um, but it was very perfectionistic. You've got a bit of a, an addictive personality uh, showing in, in other ways, uh, but you also have a, a stressful work situation. And one of the things I thought that our listeners might be interested in is the 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 fact that um, 
the situation at the hospital where you were working was a anesthesiology group and maybe they cut a little corners and more people, you know, you had to work a little harder to, to keep the group happy. Uh, and so just talk a little bit about that because I think our listeners are going to be uh, uh, interested in that. Correct. That part was very appropriately, accurately highlighted for me, the work stress, as far as like clinical taking care of really sick patients, that part I always enjoyed and that part didn't get hard. What for me was hard was I was the medical director of a group that um, was at the hospital. And so I, it was an impossible situation and many, many, many times between the group that I was working for, I had a pretty hostile relationship with the people above me there, the, uh, in my, within my group, they, um, for whatever reason, um, I don't know if they thought I was going to take over, trying to take over this contract or what, but my hospital was who really wanted me. I had a good reputation um, with the hospital across town and the surgeons really wanted me. And I was, um, you know, very requested to take care of cases and they just, and a workhorse and, and really, you know, asked for a lot out of my, you know, out of myself and my group and produced really good results. But I was chronically not given enough staff to be able to take care of the amount of cases that we were contract, you know, rooms, sites that we were supposed to contractually um, cover. Um, I we had huge amount of turnover of the anesthesiologists. There were seven of us and we also have anesthetists where I work, but there were um, seven full-time anesthesiologists. And in the three and a half years I was there, there were 34 people that rotated through those, uh, different spots. Um, and yeah. And so, so the surgeons would be unhappy as you can imagine then with someone coming in constantly different and, and some of them had different clinical skills or levels of skills. It's a busy private practice group. There were, um, regulatory things that, uh, that my group wasn't doing that the hospital wanted to do. It was just, for me, it was the political environment and an untenable situation of, you know, trying to cover, 20 sites with half the people that we needed and try to make that magic happen. And, uh, you know, I, it's, it's funny because I don't know, I think that that situation um, is, is exists now and maybe more than ever, you know, so it's, it's a, it's a tough um, situation for anesthesiologists to be in. I, I would, I would guess the only thing to do is to, to let your feelings be known to the higher ups and, and, um, uh, try to try to work it out, but it's a tough situation to be in. It's a, definitely a huge stress for sure. Huge stress. And I, I did actually bring it to the higher ups quite a bit where I failed is I had this really bad work situation. And then simultaneously, uh, my marriage was a disaster and I refused to ask for help from anyone. I just thought I could handle it myself. And that's where I got in trouble because I didn't ask or use any of the other resources that um, I now know were available to me. We talked about your personal life. So there was a, uh, uh, I think it was a, a nurse anesthetist at your hospital who you became involved with. And um, he actually was doing some fentanyl on the side, number one. But he, he, he sort of showed you the face of addiction. And I guess I sort of looked at it as he almost presented this possibility for you that, hey, if, if it works for him and he finds solace and and uh, comfort in doing this, that maybe it would work for me too. Correct. Exactly. That was it. It was actually a, a nurse, but uh, those the details. But um, that and that was the face. He was really good at what he did. Um, he didn't come. He you know didn't come across as the what I had equated in my mind with a, a fentanyl user. And um, yeah, that that was exactly it. He said like when things are super bad, uncontrolled. You know, this is just 
like it's a saying it was an okay thing, which obviously my thinking was already uh, messed up. It's never okay. And, um, you know, but definitely someone that I adored and thought very highly of and um, I was then also was using. And uh, that's where my my thinking uh, switched. And yet you actually kept it from him when he found out, apparently he was very, very upset that you had gone that extra step. Is that, am I remember that correctly? Correct. Absolutely. That was, it was kind of, it was said that I was a good person. I was a good girl that girls didn't do this. And that, you know, that's some dynamics, but yes, he was very, you know, we didn't use together. He did not want me to use um, and was very upset. Um, and for, for, for the majority, basically for the bulk of the eight months that I was using, he was the only person that knew. And, and let's talk about the use. So just so our, our listeners who, who know about these things can can understand the level of abuse that you uh, were doing at, at, at the time, what sort of um, amount of fentanyl or sufentanil were you taking in any given day? Right. Well, so when it started, the first time I ever used was I gave myself 25 mics of fentanyl at home. And you're exactly right. Some people thought it was weird that I went straight, you know, didn't try some didn't try a hydrocodone or oxy, you know, didn't try anything PO. I went straight to IV drugs. Um, the, uh, the stigma didn't associate with, I uh, wasn't, you know, that wasn't, I mean, of course the stigma of sticking the needle monitor, but I wasn't scared to do that. And then also I did think I was part of my denial process is I thought I was so smart. I knew what to do. I could do it safely. Um, I, uh, I was, a. I I said that I was this drug addict with standards. I didn't want to be, um, uh, I didn't want to take anything from my patient. So I was only going to use the waste um, kind of quickly in my brain is what I should say. I thought this. And so uh, I changed relatively quickly from my drug of choice from being from fentanyl to sufentanyl because of the way that our hospital worked. There was a lot more available for waste um, uh, you know, to use. Uh, us to, and so that's, so I switched kind of quickly. Um, by the time that I got my intervention, it was not uncommon for me to use a hundred mics, which I know roughly to, to non-anesthesia people, that's roughly a close to near anywhere from 700 to a thousand mics of fentanyl. Um, within just a kind of a short period of time, the uh, fentanyl had to be dosed more uh, rapidly in succession than if I had just used fentanyl. Um, I interestingly did not have, um, I didn't have any withdrawal symptoms for the time periods in that, that I didn't use. There were, there were a couple of weeks that I went on vacations and I didn't withdraw. So that was uh, another part of my denial that I wasn't, uh, an addict. Right. So, um, uh, you mentioned waste. Um, basically there's a couple of ways you can steal these types of things. And one of course is you waste drugs that are not used. Um, but just tell us a little bit about how you can uh, steal those wastes. I mean, sometimes just literally the someone's not looking who's supposed to be looking and you can just take the syringe or whatever. That's one way of doing it, right? Yes. Or like a case is canceled. And so there's that, um, that amount sitting around um, syringe swaps. So um, yeah, taking, um, using whatever is there, if there's a remaining amount of a, of a, of the drug at the end of the case, um, changing that out with saline and then, um, wasting with, a, a witness as, you know, doing all the things that you're supposed to do, but there you're actually waste. I was actually wasting, um, saline and not, or some other, you know, non-controlled substance. And I was, uh, and putting the fentanyl somewhere or some fentanyl to take home and use later. Um, those are kind of the real right off the bat common, 
uh, ways um, also. But and I appreciate you saying stealing because that's absolutely what it was and is. And I say medical professional use a fancy word of diversion because that sounds better, but it uh, is stealing. Um, and uh, uh, yes, there's um, it's definitely not something that I'm proud of doing at all. So. Right. Well, um, there are there are ways to um, uh, guard against that. I think IntelliGuard is one of the companies that has uh, equipment out there for that. Can you tell? You were on a podcast today with uh, IntelliGuard, who, for whom you've talked about this problem. Can you mention what it is that they do? Yes, IntelliGuard is a great company that um, is. I, I appreciate the um, their willingness to be uh, part proactive and part of the, you know, obviously the prevention part of it, as well as all the other steps of the regulatory steps, but it's a company that has RFID technology um, built in and um, it makes the automated system very easy um, and, and takes care of, it's an intuitive workflow and makes that system be much easier for anesthesia providers to do all the regulatory things we need to do. Also, it helps with um, drug inventory, um, knowing where drugs are at all times. Um, and then uh, at company mission level, they've really taken a proactive step even over years, of, you know, the last few years of um, that I've been involved with them of wanting to do a holistic approach to helping uh, the providers and, and patients stay safe. Do you think, um, um, you know, uh, I think we, we ran an article, I think, about it a year ago, and um, the person who was interviewed said that anesthesiology as, as a specialty, it's not maybe the worst, but it has a, has a, a special, you know, the, the drugs are right there. And so the, the, the field of anesthesiology might have a, uh, more of a problem uh, it, with drugs of abuse um, than other specialties. Do you think that's true or, or maybe not? So, yeah, personal opinion only. I know that probably almost all of our listeners will have, will know the articles that have been that talk about, you know, some say that it's higher in anesthesia. There's been different studies that tell us in, in the um, different articles. So I know there's differing um, opinions and the numbers are hard to quantitate. One thing that's interesting, I think now it's evolving is how, I mean, probably even five years ago, fentanyl was pretty, and fentanyl, the drugs that I chose to use were pretty limited to anesthesia personnel being able to get. And it's so widespread now. So I think that that is interesting, just watching, being in recovery and watching the surrounding recovery community with me. Um, I, I guess I say yes and no. I obviously, I realize that it's a unique um, uh, problem for anesthesiologists, but there are also lots of other um specialties that are dealing with addiction issues as well. And as of course, you know, there's other drugs to be addicted and there's also plenty of uh, alcohol problems out there amongst, you know, uh, alcohol, of course, being <laughs> readily, readily available. So um, eventually you got, got turned in by um, a, a couple of nurses who, who figured out how you were, I guess, diverting these drugs. Um, Tell a little bit about how you got um, found and then your treatment at the physician health program. Okay. Yeah. So as, as I was saying, I was the medical director for this group. I was the boss and it was three anesthetists, uh, uh, an AA and two CRNAs who were my closest friends in the group who they, what they paid attention to is um, my 
personality change. Um, I did have some physical changes. I became, I lost a bunch of weight. I was really kind of almost a gray color I can see later. Um, and I was a lot more withdrawn um, and quiet. I had not, even though I had not progressed into what a lot of times in anesthesia, we think are the um, kind of classic signs for anesthesiologists, uh, maybe hanging around late out, off, off hours, voluntary for other shifts, taking a bunch of breaks, calling in late, um, having patients wake up in a lot of pain or, you know, all the things I had not gotten to that point yet is what I said. But um, they just uh, were close to me and realized that I had a problem and kind of started paying attention. And then they contacted um, the Georgia Physicians Health Program who directed them um, to then or coordinated getting in touch with the my um the directors of my group who came in from out of town and I walked into an intervention um, on March 22, 2016. I thought I was coming in for one of the many work, uh, unannounced meeting to deal with some, one of the many disasters fires that I had to put out for someone else. And it was really my own fire. Um, They said that they were concerned about me and, you know, started the intervention with, they were concerned about me, worried about me, um, wanted me to go and do a test um, and there was a part of me that flirted with the idea of denying it all because I don't think that the, they, we, our facility had the capacity to take the test or to, to detect the sufentanil that I was using at the time. But, um, thankfully, uh, I, um, did not do that option. I actually said, yes, I want help. I want to get better. Um, I actually spoke to a, uh, I t- spoke to the executive director of the Georgia PHP who, directed me to some options, um, which were, which included saying that day that I would agree not to practice until I was, uh, it, it, it was determined that I could practice and I was given options of inpatient treatment centers to go to. And I went directly that day. That day you, you called into your family and said, I'm, 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 I'm doing what I'm doing. And, and, uh, you didn't actually, I don't think you actually were able to go home, right? You, you, I had a, a supervised trip home. One of the one of the people who had intervened came and helped me get clothes, which I was so naive. I thought, why am I having to get clothes? You know, I'm just. I thought I'd, I didn't know I'd be down there, be there for three months. But and I actually did not tell my family until um, I was at the treatment center, which is about two hours away from me, um, and checked in. So the the, the treatment centers are, are interesting, and and they have a a pretty high level of success. One of the reasons I think is it because you mentioned three months. You were there for three months, and I think most treatment centers don't have uh, people there for that long. Uh, but they take special care of physicians um, for a good reason. They're very important in society, physicians, and um, the programs um, do a lot of a, a lot of things. One of which is they isolate the physicians together uh, and don't mix them with others. Um, could you talk about that? Talk about talk about that idea because that's sort of an interesting idea, and w- how they what the treatment was like down there, which I'm assuming is kind of a twelve step program, perhaps on steroids. So a couple things, uh, kind of an overview. The good so the just like you've touched on, physicians become ill with addiction just as the public does. Um, the the data shows that approximately 10% of physicians develop addiction to all different substances over a lifetime, which is approximately the same as the general public. Kind of the difference is that with, uh, or the good news is that with aggressive care, we can get better and we do get better and go on to lead successful and meaningful lives and careers. But part of the thing is, cause we are very privileged to get the best possible care and thus have the best sex success rates of any of the cohorts. 
where I went to treatment, I went to Talbot Recovery Center, which is named after one of the original um, or someone that was really a pioneer in um, uh, as being a, having an addiction disorder. Uh, his was alcohol. He, he was a physician and wanted to get, you know, hit kind of this healing for the healer uh, mentality. When I, I went to, to Talbot, they did have a professionals program, but I was actually mixed in with every, you know, my, my roommate was, I had um, someone, you know, there were, there were other healthcare provi- providers like uh, pharmacy, nursing, but then there were also teachers, attorneys. There were people, I had a couple of people that lived in my little area with me that were unemployed and had been actually like been on kind of the street drug scene. So, which I thought was actually helpful. So I agree with you. I personally didn't have, I don't know what it's like to only be with physicians. We did have um, like two or three hour over the week meetings um, that were um, kind of caduceous, they would call and they would be more um, like possibly an hour meeting that was peer support and all the different, um, the pilots had one, the, uh, attorneys had one, they, they did kind of do some of that, but then there were also plenty of groups where it was, you're mixed with everyone. This, my treatment program was a, a 12 step based, uh, also. And, but you're absolutely right. Uh, the, the 90 days that I was mandated to do, I promise you, I did not want to do it at the time. I said, I'll just behave. Just let me go back. I'll never do it again. I know I was really bad. And absolutely, I needed to do that. So. Yeah. And, and I, I'm, I, as a 12-step uh, thing, are you continuing to do the 12-step, you know, going to meetings and things like that? Is that what's um, requested of you? Yeah. So the actual, so kind of then continuing with that, just with my overview, I know a lot of, a lot of states have uh, physician self programs to different degrees. Uh, my contract, once I got out of my 90 days of treatment, and I don't know if you want to talk about it later or not, but one of the things that's discussed with anesthesia specifically and with my addiction to parenteral um, narcotics was a discussion and a very serious discussion if I would even go back to anesthesia or not. So, but once I completed my 90 days and I then um, had a meeting and got discharged home, I got, had a meeting with um, the director of the PHP here in Georgia and um, had, you know, kind of went over my specific uh, comorbidities, for instance, a big ang- uh, anxiety disorder, uh, social anxiety disorder, um, things that I had not been managing at all, um, the, the unique uh, home stress and in specific regards to having a, a spouse at the time who also had used, um, you know, just kind of the whole picture, my specific uh, addiction, illness picture, and then what was going to be the treatment plan for me going forward. And so in that meeting, it was determined when, if I could go back to work and then if so, when I could go back to work and under what conditions. Uh, and, and, and indeed you, you are, you are back at work. Um, tell us about that. So you're, you're, you're back, uh, you know, being an anesthesiologist, um, the it's interesting because of course there's temptation involved with that you you're seeing the 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 drug or drugs that you were tempted to take before and i i was struck by the fact that there, there's no specific um you know they they don't treat you any different from any other anesthesiologist they don't watch over you any more uh or or less um and, and which i thought was sort of a questionable thing i thought that they probably should um so talk about that Right. So absolutely a couple different things. One thing I also, I didn't give my standard uh, disclaimer, but all of the decisions I made were my decisions. I didn't, it's not anyone else's fault. It's not my ex-husband. It's not my work. You know, it was my fault when my 
um, decisions to do the things I did. Also, by, by I don't try to uh, excuse anything I did by talking about it later. Um, but one of the things for me for going back to work is I chose to not go back to the, the environment where I had been to that job. I said, I'm not going back to that hospital, although it was not its fault. It was just that environment for me was very, very unhealthy. Uh, I was while I was in treatment, I interviewed for another job at a hospital approximately uh, 30 minutes from the other hospital. And they knew my whole story. They knew I was literally at a treatment center and what for. I interviewed with the whole med exec uh, committee at that hospital and answered completely forthright any questions that they wanted to have. And then they had a discussion whether they wanted to hire me, knowing the risk that I uh, incurred for them. When I showed up at the hospital, I said, I will do, well, in the process of credentialing, I'll do whatever kind of, uh, whatever kind of requirements you want for me. If you want me to not have access to um, the controlled substances, if you want me to waste my drugs differently, if you want, um, you know, someone else to, if you want me not to take call uh, solo for the first little bit, you know, just, I, so I completely volunteered for that. One of the things also I had, um, the support of the PHP the entire time, and that is random drug testing, um, uh, urine drug screens at least three or four times a month, as well as um, hair samples. I did hair samples and nail samples throughout this entire five years, three months since I've been in recovery. And they were always overlapping. So they covered at least, there was always, that was always there. So that's a, at least some part of a, um, uh, so agreed that I think, um, to answer your question, I, I think every place should be individual, and I, I do not think it's a good idea to just to not uh, put a bunch of safeguards around any of us, but especially um, myself and others that are in recovery. Got it. Um, you know, you're coming out like this and 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 telling your story is as I said, I think it takes a lot of guts. And um, what what are you hoping to accomplish by this um, approach? Well, I genuinely um, want to help anyone that I can help. When I go and talk to um, medical students, for instance, or residents, I um, tell them that I don't think everyone's going to end up like me, although it could happen to anyone. It doesn't happen to everyone, and I realize that. But that leaves in a room, if we even think that the number is 10%, approximately 90% of the people I'm talking to may be in the position of my three friends who – um, saved my life by being willing to, to have the courage to say something about me. And definitely there's still a cultural thing, at least where I am, of wanting to protect, um, oh, this person worked so hard to get this career. Let's not, you know, seeing some red flags, right. but protect them. And in reality, I was protected by being intervened on, even though at the time I was furious. Um, uh, thank goodness that I hadn't hurt anyone, um, that I hadn't caused a bad outcome, that I hadn't, you know, so many good things that were done by that. So to give people the encouragement and the courage also to, if I can help anyone that feels like I did or isn't, it was like I was about not being able to have balance and manage things. And so to encourage them to ask for help now before it gets to that situation and definitely to show that it can happen to anyone. And um, just, just to try to help others is my motivation for doing it. Mm -hmm. Any, anything else you want to add? I know that literally just this week, my kind of five-year mandatory um, status with the PHP ended, and I elected to do the senior monitoring with them um, because I just think all the things that whatever I can – I'm 
just like you alluded to, I need to do everything that I could do to keep myself safe, to keep my patients safe, to keep my colleagues feeling safe. Um, and, you know, anyway, that's I'm con- trying to continue to do everything right so that I never become that person again. I, I think that's it. I, I appreciate you, uh, you talking to us. You did uh, a very interesting story and, uh, as I say, gutsy. And I thank you very much, Dr. Coleman, for, for talking to us. Thank you to Dr. Coleman for sharing such a personal and difficult experience with us. And thank you to James for another excellent interview. And thank you to all of you for joining us. We'll be back next week with our final episode of Ask the Experts for this season, and our guest next week will be Dr. Sonia Vaida. so stay tuned for that. And as always, thank you so much for listening. This Anesthesiology News Presents feature was produced this month by James Pruden, our editorial director, and me, Michael DePoe-Wilson. It was edited by Ken Christensen. Music for this episode comes from Blue Dot Studios. The rest of the team is Richard Tordo, Justin Kaback, Blake Dennis, Betty Zong, Christian Janicone, Lucia Scanlon, Kwang Yi Chung, Sophia Lee, and Sam Steinfeld. Anesthesiology News Presents is a project of Anesthesiology News, the most widely read publication for the specialty, and the McMahon Publishing Group. <laughs>